Matthew chapter 5. We'll start in chapter 4. That's on page 809 of your pew Bible, if you'd like to use that. If you don't have a paper Bible in your home, you are welcome to take the, the Bible that's in the pew. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to read God's Word. We believe that it changes people's lives, and we'd love for you to have that. So Matthew chapter 4, and I'm going to start reading in verse 23. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And he, Jesus, and Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea. And from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you and we are grateful for who you are as God. We praise you that you are wise, you are good, you are loving, you're infinitely sovereign, and in your wisdom and love, you've made known to us the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. You've revealed salvation to us. I pray that we would understand that this morning, what the message of the gospel is, how we can find life and hope and forgiveness in the truths of the gospel. Lord, your word is powerful. Uh, we ask that you would open our hearts to it this morning, that you'd give us uh, ears to hear and eyes to see. Uh, teach us, encourage us, instruct us, confront us. Father, would your spirit use your word? May I not get in the way of that. May I not say less or more than I should. Use your word in our lives. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're starting a new sermon series this morning. And just to put your minds at ease, we titled this, the great, I titled this, The Greatest Sermon Ever. But no, my uh, New Year's resolution ambitions are not mixed with a little bit of arrogance. I don't in any way think that today's message will be the greatest sermon ever. What we're going to do is for the next several sermons, look at the greatest sermon ever. Jesus himself preached the Sermon on the Mount. It's a collection of his teachings. Perhaps he delivered it in this very form and uh, we are going to slow down and go verse by verse through it and examine the greatest sermon ever by the greatest preacher ever, Jesus himself. In fact, at the end this, of my message, if I save enough time, I'd like to read from beginning to end all 107 verses. I think it'll take about 12 minutes. And some of you are wondering why I talk so long if the greatest sermon ever can be delivered in 12 minutes. And I don't have an answer for you on that. But uh, I'd like you just to hear it. And we're going we're gonna to slow down as we go through it. A few verses at a time, a section at a time, unpack its teaching. We'll take a break for Easter and who knows what maybe else. But I, my guess is it'll be at least six months that we'll be in these three chapters of Scripture, Matthew 5 through 7, and look uh, at, at, at what the Sermon on the Mount is and what it means for our lives. A man named John Stott wrote about this sermon. He, he had this to say, that it was the closest thing, it was the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. For it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. It's, it's marching orders from Jesus. That th this is what Christians look like. 
This is what Jesus' people, this is what characterizes their lives. Have you ever been around a group of people that had a certain set of characteristics? They looked a certain way, they acted a certain way, they even dressed a certain way. Have you ever entered that group of people and tried to figure out what does it take to be on the in with this group of people? Or perhaps you enter a group and you very quickly realize, I'm not one of these, like I'm on the outs. You remember the, the horror of the first day of school in a new school building? You're, you're, you're like breaking into, they, they, know, they know the lingo, they know the system, they know, they know everything, and you're clueless, right? Uh, many groups of people have certain unwritten, crook, unwritten codes. This is, this is the way you look, this is the way you dress, this is the way you act, this is what it takes to be one of us. Well, if you can think of that for a social setting in a group of people, what does it take to be a Christian? What, is it, what, what do you look like? What do you act like? What, what are the feelings and desires inside of your heart? What are the characteristics of Jesus' people? What do Christians look like? Not just for us in 2020, but when Jesus came to earth, and as he was ministering among people, what did they think God's people looked like? What did they think God's people acted like? What did they think God's people dressed like? What did it take to be a child of God? And what was Jesus going to proclaim to show this is what real Christians look like? This is what it, this is what it means to be God's child. As we think about Shawnee Baptist Church, as we think about Christians in the year 2020 here in South Jersey, what what do you think it would look like for a group of people to come together and to commit themselves to the truth of the gospel and to living out a church, to living as the church in this day and age? What would it mean? What would we act like? How would we talk? What would rule our hearts? What would the characteristics of our lives be? Would we look like would we just copy whatever latest and greatest seems to be working in the churches around us or throughout the nation? What would Jesus' instructions to us be for our lives even as we think about the start of this year as a church? What should our marching orders be? What should our directives be? How are we supposed to act? How are we supposed to live? What is supposed to characterize our lives? Well, as we think about God's expectations of us as a people, it's a great question to tune into. It's a very necessary question to tune into because one of the central themes that runs from beginning to end of Scripture is that God has an expectation for those who are His. God's people are supposed to be set apart. They're supposed to be holy. They're supposed to be unique. They're supposed to be different. If God Himself is holy, then His people are supposed to be holy. It's a central theme, an essential theme running through Scripture is that God's people are set apart and different and unique and holy, blameless. The sermon's going to talk a lot about that. So, so what does that look like? How did it look in Scripture? If we use the nation of Israel for an example, if you go back to, through some of the Old Testament, as God created for himself a nation, and he said, Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And God had instructions. He had specific rules that he wanted for his people. They were supposed to be a nation set apart. That, that, that's part of what it means to be holy, is that they're set apart, they're set unto God, they're, they're sinless and blameless, and there was something unique and special that he wanted for his people. I'm just going to read for you, you don't need to turn there, in Leviticus chapter 18, as God is creating for himself this nation, he's about to give them the promised land, he's brought them out of Egypt, and he says this, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. 
where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord, your God. This was God's marching orders for his nation. He wanted them to be a unique people. He wanted them to live according to his rules. But, but clearly, they were a sinful people. Just like you and I, they had sinful hearts and sinful tendencies. And so God had a means or a way to solve that tension where God himself, righteous and holy, could dwell among his people. And God instituted the sacrificial Old Testament law system as a, as a means of, of sin being covered so that God could dwell with sinful people. Well, if I was to ask you to think back on Old Testament history, how well did Israel do at living as God's people? How good were they at being holy and set apart and distinct and following God perfectly? Well, the truth is they didn't do very well at that. They didn't do very well at that at all. They continuously mingled with the nations around them. God said, don't be like Egypt. Don't be like the people of Canaan that I'm sending you into. They assimilated. They took, they took aspects of other nations' worship into their own lives. They frequently got involved in idolatry. Even when they demanded a king, do you remember what they said? Let us be like the nations around us. We want a king over us. God wanted them to be different than the nations around them. And they wanted to be as much as possible like them. For you and I, God wants us to be different than the world around us. How much do we have that pull and draw to be as close to the culture and world around us? Let's come back to Israel. So, so they continued to assimilate, they continued to mingle, they continued to be like the other nations, and eventually that's what led to their downfall as a nation. They were, the, the, the kingdom divided, it took a little while for, uh, the, the, for both groups to be taken into captivity, but eventually they were both carried off into captivity, and, and, and they, were, uh, they suffered the consequences of not living as the way God intended. And yet, all along the way, God showed his faithfulness, showed his promises that God had chosen them, he had called them, he was going to rescue them. There was, he was going to fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham. There was going to be a kingdom. There was going to be a Messiah. There was going to be a rescuer. And even in captivity, there would be prophets who would bring messages of hope that there was this future salvation coming. So that brings us up through the Old Testament. And then you come to the arrival of Jesus Christ. The incarnation, where God himself, this Messiah and King and Redeemer, God himself takes on flesh and, and enters into humanity. It's what we have just walked through celebrating, remembering in this Christmas season. That God himself breaks in to rescue his people. We covered some of that through the book of Luke. That's the way Matthew starts his gospel in chapters 1 and 2, and he walks through the birth narrative. And then, and then Jesus lived on earth. He is the king, but it looked very different than everyone expected. He lived his perfect life, but he also died, and he was buried, and he rose again to bring salvation and eternal life. So that brings us then to what, what is Matthew's purpose in writing this gospel. Jesus' life is over. Everything I've just said has happened. Matthew wants to write to the Jews. He, he especially wants to uniquely show how Jesus was the king of the Jews, this long-awaited Messiah that they had been waiting for. Now, for the Jew, 
let's come back to that question of what it meant to be one of God's people. If you were alive in that day, and especially if you were a Jew or if you were familiar with the Jewish system, to be one of God's children, the greatest example in your mind would have been the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the Jewish system. Now, for you and I in 2020, if you're familiar with Scripture, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have a bad taste in your mouth. You think of them as bad people because they were at odds with Jesus. They, they, they did not understand what it meant to be a Christian. But in that day, Day, for the Jews of that day, Pharisees and Sadducees were not bad people. They, they would have not left a bitter taste in your mouth. They were the best of the best. They were the most careful at following God's laws. They would have been the kinds of people that would have been in church every time the doors were open. These were the people, surely, who had the closest relationship with God outside of the very priests themselves. Surely these Pharisees and Sadducees, they knew what it meant to be God's child, and surely that was the standard that everybody thought, this, this is the characteristics. If you want to know what the characteristics of Jesus' people look, well, they, weren't, they wouldn't have thought of Jesus' people. They would have said, this is, if you want to know what it looks like to be God's child, look at the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's their characteristics. That's our marching orders is to be like them because they're doing it better than anyone well, Jesus came and completely confronted that system. He said, everything you think about the way to follow God is completely wrong. He, he, he said everything was going to be completely different. And Matthew wrote in such a way as to help us understand why it was different. He, he wanted to write and confront that system and show us, look, if you want to be close to God, if you want to be God's child, you really do need righteousness. You really do need goodness. Equate the word righteousness with goodness for our purposes this morning. You really do need to be a good person to be a child of God. But Matthew wrote to say it has nothing to do with what you think the Pharisees and Sadducees are like. That's not how you find goodness. And so Matthew wrote and he wanted to show us who Jesus was and what his life was like and what Jesus was teaching. So let me come back to some of the verses that I just read in chapter 4 as we started this morning. In Matthew chapter 4 starting in verse 23, Matthew's recording for us this is what the life of Jesus was like. He's told us already about the birth narrative. Then he also told us what it was like when at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus' ministry, when Jesus himself was baptized to identify with that message, there's, the, there's the, the preparing of Jesus for ministry as he goes into the temptation and then the wilderness in the beginning of chapter 4. And then there's the beginning of his public ministry. And, and Matthew wants us to catch the fact that Jesus was very popular in his ministry. Crowds were attracted to him. As Jesus began to teach and minister, people wanted to know what he had to say. And that's why he says in verse 23, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, so that his, frame, his fame spread throughout all of Syria. So, so here's Jesus who begins to teach and he begins to heal and his fame begins to spread and he begins to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Now as, as Matthew writes to a particularly Jewish audience, their ears would peer, perk up about the gospel. Not When we think of the gospel, we think of the good news, the good news of salvation, the good news that, that life, death, and forgiveness is life and forgiveness is found in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that, a good, that a relationship with Christ can be had. That forgiveness of sins can be had through what Christ has accomplished on the cross. But when the Jews heard not th th that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, that's not what they would have thought. 
They wouldn't have thought about the forgiveness of the sins. They would have thought about the the good news that the kingdom was being proclaimed. This long-awaited promise that that a king was going to come, that that salvation was here, that that a Messiah, that a Redeemer, all these promises we've been waiting for, we're we're no longer going to be under Roman captivity. We're going to have our rightful place restored and Jesus is, well, they weren't waiting for Jesus. They were waiting for a Messiah to come set up his kingdom and to rule. That's what they would have been waiting for. If you come back to verse 17 of chapter 4, From that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. They needed to change their lives. They needed to repent. Why? Because the kingdom was near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was John the Baptist's message even in chapter 3, verse 2. And so this would have been very, very exciting that they would have thought, the king, the kingdom, this is what we've been waiting for. This is it. And the Sermon on the Mount is going to be Jesus' explanation of what life in that kingdom was supposed to look like. What life under the king, perhaps more accurately, a better way to say it, that here's what life under the king, here's what citizens of that kingdom, here's the way they live their lives, here's their characteristics, here's their attitudes. I've been talking about what it would be like if you heard it as a Jew in that day and age. Let me jump, let me jump back to 2020 here in Shimon. For, for those of you that have grown up like I have with dispensational theology, and, and there's a few things when you hear the word kingdom, there's a couple things that we want to tune into as well. We, we correctly, I think, understand and emphasize that there's a distinction between the church and Israel, that God's plans and purposes are unique for each, and that some of the kingdom promises that God has promised for Israel, we are still waiting for the future, and we're still waiting for a literal fulfillment of where Christ will one day come back and completely fulfill fulfill literally and physically his rule as he has promised. When we hear the word kingdom though, sometimes we tend to think because of our uh, because of that emphasis, we think okay, it's hard for us to understand well what does it mean here? We instantly jump forward to future and yet as the way Matthew talks about kingdom, he's one of the gospel writers in particular that he confronts us with this understanding of the word that that the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what Jesus was proclaiming. What is he saying there? He's saying that the king has come. At minimum, he's saying the king is here. It's near. Everything you've heard. Now, we are still waiting because he was rejected, because the king crucified. There is a sense that we are waiting for still for that literal future fulfillment of some of those millennial promises of the kingdom, but we understand that the king has come. There's something that he's inaugurated and started that's already, but there's a not yet that we're waiting for fulfillment. And so keep that in mind as we go through the sermon that here's here's what life under the king looks like. I do think it's instructions and marching orders for us even today as Christians that though there are promises we're still waiting for, here's today how life under the king is supposed to be lived for God's Christians, for for people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. This is what life under the king looks like. And so while we're going to slow down and walk through the sermon verse by verse, today we're going to catch a 30,000 foot view. And here's what John Stott has to say about the way Jesus wanted, he wanted people to understand that life under the king was completely different, completely countercultural to everything they were used to. Particularly, it wasn't the goodness that they thought they saw in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Here's what John Stott says, thus the followers of Jesus are to be different different from both the nominal church and the secular world, different from both the religious and the irreligious. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. 
Here's a Christian value system, an ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, and network of relationships, all of which are totally at variance with those of the non-Christian world. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a fully human life indeed, but lived out under the divine rule. It's what we have to look forward to as we go through this verse by verse. What does Jesus expect our lives to look like? I want to summarize for you just a little bit of what, what the sermon addresses. Let's look at some of the subject matter of the sermon as we go through this. You'll notice in chapter 5, Jesus says that seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So we've set the context already that Jesus is popular. There are crowds around him, but at this point, he goes up onto the mountain, and his disciples come near to him. So this is to those who are actually his followers. These are to not just the, the masses and the crowds, but instructions to his followers followers that he wants them to understand what life is supposed to look like and so he's going to give them much instruction it's very interesting to note some of the language that's used he went up on the mountain to understand the significance of jesus being on the mountain we've got to understand just a little bit of the way the mountain would have been thought of in both the ancient and in the jewish mindset in the ancient world, there was something uh, almost mystical or magical about mountains. See, this was the place that, that heaven and earth met. And there would be some that would say that many people thought of mountains as the place where it, gods or deities, this is where important things happened on mountains. This is where instructions from heavenly realms came out. So if that's the ancient mindset, specifically in the Jewish mindset, there would have been a more personal thought to mountains because they would have remembered the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The mountain is where Abraham himself went up on the mountain. Same language is used here in verse 1 as in the Septuagint translation when Moses went up on the mountain to bring down the law in terms of the original Ten Commandments. And so the Jew who was in tune to this would have recognized perhaps some of that language that now here, Jesus, the one who made the world, the one who made the mountain, goes up on the mountain and he's going to teach his followers a, a correct understanding of the law that was given. He's going to help reinterpret how they should have understood what it revealed about God and what it revealed about themselves. And he's going to walk through it in several chapters. Let me, let me give you a few broad categories that if we were to go through this, here's some of the things that it's going to address in our lives as we walk through it in these months. A man named David Platt had a very helpful summary of some of these. So I, I've changed a few of his, but borrow just a few of his categories. And I want to walk through some of it very, very quickly. If you look at chapter 5, you're going to see that over and over and over, attitudes are addressed, right? Attitudes in the life of a Christian are addressed that this is what it looks like to be a Christian. So if you see the Beatitudes, there are many attitudes listed there. But not just that. If your Bible has headings, you'll see some of these paragraph headings that anger is addressed in verse 21, lust in verse 27, divorce in verse 31, oaths or honesty or the truthfulness of our words in verse 33, uh, retaliation or revenge and all of the attitudes associated with that in verse 38. Um, love that's displayed not just among one another, but love towards enemies starting in verse 43. And so each of those paragraphs deal with specific attitudes. Now, there would have been a group of people, many of these things, quite a few of them, at least six of them, relate to specific Old Testament commandments. And there would have been many people that correctly understood, I can't break these laws. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And they knew, okay, I don't want to break that law. But the, the, the religious leaders came up with ways to circumvent laws where they could check the box and say, okay, I haven't broken that law. 
But in their heart, in attitudes, they found ways to get around some of these things. And so though they maybe actually hadn't committed murder, they could get away with, with hateful words and speech, and they thought they were okay because they hadn't committed murder. And Jesus comes and shows them, no, even the attitude that's addressed by the law, thou shalt not murder, deals with the words that come out of our mouth. And so Jesus is going to completely turn upside down the, the attitudes that existed in people's hearts in their lives and he wants to help them understand that. But not just attitudes then. Also, uh, Jesus writes and under, Jesus teaches on desires. If you look at, verse, at chapter 6, you'll see there's uh, giving to the needy. What we do with our money. What, the way that we are generous. At the beginning of chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. So what, when we are praying, what is our desires or what motivates us? With what motivation do we do these things? When we give generously, when we pray, why? What is motivating us? Uh, fasting. What's our desires and motivations behind that in verse 16? Storing up treasures in verse 19. Again, coming back to our money. What motivates us? What are our desires? And then starting in verse 25, a pretty lengthy section on worry. And Jesus doesn't want us to worry. Why? He wants to show us where our trust should be. What, is, what, what desires are ruling our heart? Where have we placed our trust when it comes to the approval of others, whether that be with our material goods or whether that be with the attitudes of our heart and attitudes that cause us to worry? And Jesus wants to completely override the motivations and desires, and he's going to help show people a better way. Not just attitudes, not just desires, but even relationships. You've already heard about several things in terms of revenge, in terms of divorce, uh, but there's more relationships that are addressed in chapter 7. At the beginning of the chapter, in terms of judging others uh, and judging ourselves, hugely important when it comes to interrelational dynamic. Uh, and then also the golden rule, chapter 7, verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And even our relationships are going to be completely overwritten by the nature of Jesus' teaching and who he is. So that's a, a super brief summary of, he, here's some of the things we're going to look at, here's some of what Jesus wanted to cover, and Jesus wanted to show, look, if you, if you really understand what it's like to be a Christian, all of these areas of your life are going to be affected. Now, why is this important? Why are the next six months as we walk through this, why is a proper understanding of the characteristics of Christianity, why is a proper understanding of what it means to, be, to have Jesus rule our lives important? Well, Jesus himself closes the sermon with some of the importance, I guess you could say. Or here's, here's the seriousness, as David Platt said. Here's the seriousness of, of why this is important to understand for as popular as Jesus' sermon in is, it has been, it has been often misunderstood, and we want to make sure that we get it right. Look at verse uh, 16 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 16, as Jesus is concluding the sermon, here's why it's so important. He gives a warning to beware of false prophets. He, he talks about ravenous wolves, and he says, listen, be on guard because there's going to be false teachers. He says in verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. He says again in verse 20, they will recognize, you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus' message does have, you will bear fruit both for good or for bad. The, the outcome will be evident. Truly Jesus' followers will bear good fruit just as the false teachers will bear fruit. And it's so important, look in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, before I get to verse 21, come back to verse 13 of chapter 7. 
16, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There is only one of two paths. I need you to know that this morning. If you are here listening and wondering, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? There is only one of two paths. paths. The way that leads to life, and that is narrow, and those who find it are few. And the, the way that leads to destruction, and that is wide, and those who find it are many. And, and, and the importance of understanding how we are supposed to enter the narrow gate is what all of this sermon revolves around. And then come down to verse 21 of chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a serious subject matter. It will have eternal weighty complications that if we get this wrong, we're not a Christian. Even if we look a certain way on the outside, there will come a day where we stand in judgment before God and we want to make sure we understand what that criteria is for judgment. So what, what is it? What is that criteria? What was the purpose of this whole sermon? What was Jesus trying to accomplish? And what does it mean for us today? It, it comes back again to this idea of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, in chapter 5, if you want to flip back to chapter 5, one of the things that Jesus says in his explanation of this, in chapter 5, verse 48, he says this after he's described a discrepancy, and he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that standard is shocking. How could any of us attain perfection? Is that what this sermon is about? Is if we try hard enough, can we attain perfection? If we just work hard enough at loving our enemies, at turning the other cheek, at not glancing lustfully, at not responding in anger, is that how we arrive to perfection? Remember, who was the best at perfection in the Jewish mindset? It was the Pharisee and the Sadducee. Come back to chapter 5, verse 17. Here's what Jesus says. This, this passage is so important that we'll walk through it again when we actually get to this. This is kind of the key hinge that, that helps us interpret the entire sermon. In verse 17, Jesus says of chap, chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus wasn't coming to completely do away with the entire law. He was coming to say, I fulfilled it. I'm the one who has brought that righteousness. And they thought, the Jewish mindset thought, well, surely the Pharisees fulfilled the law. But the Pharisees didn't fulfill the law. Look at verse 21, verse 20. I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you were there when Jesus said those words, uh, your, your, your jaw would have fell open. I have to be better than the Pharisees. They're the best of the best. How could you exceed their righteousness? Now, Jesus is not saying that we have to have a quantitatively more righteousness than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's not saying we have to work even harder than them. Nobody could work harder at fulfilling all of the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, Jesus is saying that we have to have a qualitatively different kind of righteousness, a different kind of goodness that only Jesus himself can provide through the gospel. 
You see, if, you, if we spend the next six months and you walk through this thinking, I have, this is how hard I have to try, this is how hard I have to work, this is how much I need to work at, at turning the other cheek, at loving my neighbor, at speaking truthfully, if I do this good enough, this is what makes me a Christian. If we walk through the next six months and that's what you think, then we've completely missed the mark in helping you understand what Jesus was trying to say. What Jesus was trying to say was, you do need to live this way. Yes, it is important. The only one who can accomplish this in your life is Jesus. Here's what David Platt says. The last thing we need to come away with is an imposing and crushing laundry list of things that we must do in order to be accepted by God. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you should not walk away thinking, I must turn the other cheek in order to be accepted by God. I must love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me in order to be accepted by God. I must follow the golden rule perfectly in order to be accepted by God. We are not accepted by God because of anything that we do. We are accepted by God completely and totally because of a perfect Savior who has died a bloody death in our place and who has risen again in victory. Yes, we pray for our enemies. We love those who persecute us and we follow the golden rule. But we do these things not in order to earn acceptance before God, but because we have acceptance by God and we want to glorify him in everything that we do. You see, Matthew, in wanting to tell us who Jesus is, he doesn't get to the end of the greatest sermon ever and put his pen down and close the book and say, go, try hard. You see, there's 21 chapters left. Talk about how Jesus perfectly did these things. Talk about how he willingly allowed himself to be crucified on the cross in our place. He rose again to new life. And his offer of forgiveness is extended to any who would turn from their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Only when we find that eternal life and forgiveness, only when we accept Jesus' work on the cross for our sins, can we have a relationship with God such that he is our king, he is our ruler, he is our savior, and his grace works in our hearts to cause us to love neighbor, to cause us to follow the golden rule, to cause us to respond in kindness when we want to respond in anger. Only Jesus can accomplish those things. And I want you to see over the coming weeks this beautiful picture of what life lived by, with Jesus is like. What would happen in 2020 for Shawnee Baptist Church if we as individuals were more completely ruled by Jesus and his love? If, if we gave him areas of our hearts that we have struggled with, that is what will, will accomplish something great among the people of God. And as we sit here on the cusp of a new year and we wonder, well, well what, what is it we're, that we're supposed to be about as a church? Is it, is it new programs? Is it becoming like the, the, the church down the street? Is it what initiatives do we need to start to help turn us into the people of God? Hopefully, by God's grace, there will be some new programs rolled out in the year ahead. But the thing that's going to cause the greatest impact in our lives is when we are ruled by the love of the one who came to accomplish things in our lives that we could never do on our own. To make us Jesus people only by his grace. To give us those characteristics in our lives. So with that in mind, let me close by reading for you the greatest sermon ever. It'll take a little while. Refresh your mind and heart. Listen as we follow along. Don't get lost. And then we'll pray together. Here's what Jesus said as he opened his mouth and he taught. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you sh cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he who makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to the Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, if then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye where there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if he has a son, asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O oh, Father, we come to you, and we are grateful that you wanted to make us perfect even as you are perfect. And you sent Jesus Christ to provide a righteousness through his sacrificial death on the cross. If there are any with us this morning, that don't know Christ as Savior, that haven't repented of their sins and trusted in Christ's work on the cross, may they do that this morning. May they turn to you in faith. May they confess their sins, acknowledging that they have rebelled against you, trusting in Christ's work on the cross as payment for eternal life. Father, as we as a church, as your followers, as your people, study this in the coming weeks and months, Father, we want to hear your words and do them. We, we want to know what it be, means to be changed by God's grace. Father, would you work in our hearts to teach us who you are as you've promised to shepherd us and to guide us and to come near to us and to make us like your Son. By your grace, Father, would you accomplish righteousness and goodness and Christ-likeness in our hearts one by one, day by day, moment by moment, decision by decision. Work your goodness in our lives. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.